We are up to chapter 5, Mishnah number 10. And today we're going to do something a little bit unusual. We're going to do Mishnah number 10 and Mishnah number 11 and Mishnah number 12 because it's really one continuous theme that these three Mishnahs have. So, of course, we're going to read it as we always do. And then we're going to try to figure out what the theme is. And then we're going to go through the details. Shiva mine puranias bain laolam al shiva gruve averos. There are seven categories, seven kinds of punishment that befall the world for seven categories of transgressions. Okay, number one. If some people tithe and some people don't tithe, so some people fulfill their obligations of tithing and some don't, then the consequence of that is ra'av shel batsores ba. A famine resulting from a drought comes. And as a result of that, mitzasem ra'avim, so that some people go hungry and some people are satiated, are satisfied. Okay, number one. Number two, gamru shalola aser. If people made a decision collectively to not tithe, rav shel muhuma vishel Then you have a different kind of famine, a famine resulting of armed bandits and fright and chaos and of a drought. So that's a more intense drought. That affects more people. Okay, number three. If people decide not to separate the challah, the challah is the offering, like the tithe that we give to the coin from the dough. Then you have a ra'av shel kaliyaba. You have a famine of complete and utter destruction come. Okay, number four. Mission number 11. Dever bala olam. Pestilence comes to the world. That is a result of death penalties prescribed in the Torah that were not delegated to the courts. And for the improper use of produce of the sabbatical year, of course, the sabbatical year is the seventh year. Every seven years we have the Shemitah, and on the Shemitah we can't do work with the field, we can't uh, tend to the field, we can't sow the field, we can't plant the field, and we cannot guard those fruits. Those fruits are sanctified, those fruits must be made ownerless, and anyone can take it, and if people make improper use of the fruits of the sabbatical year, then a pestilence comes to the world. Okay, number five, cherev bala olam, a sword, i.e. war, bala olam comes to the world, al ino hadin, for the delay of justice, Val Ivusadin for the perversion of justice, the Alhamorim Batora Shalok Halacha. And for those who issue rulings from the Torah contrary to the Halacha, i.e., they issue incorrect rulings. Okay, number six. Wild beasts descend upon the world. What's the reason for that? Al Shavuasha for unnecessary oaths, Valhil Hashem, and for the desecration of God's name. And finally, Galus Bala Olam, exile comes to the world for four different sins. Al Ovdevarazara, for those who worship idolatry. Val Gilu Yarayas, and for licentiousness. Val Shvichas Damim, and for the shedding of blood. Val Shmitas Aaretz, and for not observing the Sabbath of the land. Okay. And Mishnah number 12 is again a similar theme. Ba'arbar Prakim Adev Misrabe, for four periods. The pestilence increases, Baravis, on the fourth year. So remember, we have the seven-year cycle. And on the fourth year, we have a risk of pestilence. Uba Shvius on the seventh year. Uba Matsai Shvius. And for the period following the seventh year, 
and for the period following the Sukkot festival, Shebechol Shana Veshana for every year. Why? Baravias Mipne Maaser Oni Shebeshlishes. The pestilence comes on the fourth year because of neglecting to tithe for the poor on the third year. There is a cycle of tithing. The first and second years of the seven-year Shemitah cycle, you have what's called Maiser Rishon, the first tithing, which goes to the Levite. Maiser Sheni, the second tithing, which you bring to Jerusalem yourself. And the third year is Maiser Rishon, the first tithing, which goes to the Levite. And Maiser Ani, the tithing for the poor, goes to the poor. So in the fourth year, which is the year that follows the third year, because people neglected to give the tithe to the poor, there's an increased risk of pestilence. Okay. Bashvias, in the seventh year, the seventh year follows the sixth year. So just like you have one, two, and then three of the seven-year cycle, the first two years is the first and second tithes, and the third year is the first tithe and the tithe of the Poor person. Four, five, six follows the same pattern. The first and second year, i.e. year four, year five, you have first tithe and second tithe. And year six, you have first tithe and the tithe of the poor. Instead of the second tithe, you have the tithe of the poor. And therefore, the seventh year, which is the year that comes after the sixth year, that's the year that's following the year that people were supposed to tithe for the poor and they didn't do it. And therefore, there is a risk of pestilence. Bimotsayishvius. In the period following the sabbatical year, because of the improper use of the produce of the sabbatical year. And finally, in the period following the Sukkot festival of every year, because of the stealing of the mandated gifts of the poor. That is the time when people are harvesting. And during the harvest season, we have the various mitzvos of tithing or of gifts to the poor, the leftover bundles, the bundles that you drop, etc., the corner of your field, that is a time where people are supposed to give time to the poor or give the gifts to the poor, and if they neglect to do that, then that is a period ripe for pestilence. Thus, Mishnah number 12 is a Mishnah that deals with the four times that people neglect tending to the poor, and that is the four times that have the risk of pestilence being increased. Okay, so these are the three Mishnas that are featured uh, today. Now, I want to start with a big picture. What is the general idea being conveyed here? What is the central theme of these three ideas, of these three Mishnas? I think that's important to discuss at the onset. And I think it's a little bit difficult for us to process this idea because what these Mishnas are telling us is that there's a specific cause and effect for various transgressions, for various sins that lead to various punishments or various bad consequences to humanity. When there is a drought, when there is a famine, when there is a war, when there is pestilence, when there are plagues, when bad things happen to us as a society, our instinct is to try to find rational reasons for why these bad things happen. That's how we're customized to view the cause and effect. Oh, there is a drought. I must be some weather patterns, climate change. Oh, there's a war. We need more diplomacy. Uh, oh, there's, there's pestilence. Maybe we need better vaccines and the like. And this mission is telling us that the Torah's perspective on these bad things 
is that they are the result of spiritual reasons. If there's a spiritual deficiency, then that's going to be manifested in some sort of physical consequence. And thus, this is an entirely different mindset for how to process bad things happening in the world. Our instinct is to say, let's try to address the problem, try to find the root cause of the problem, and try to solve it, or try to create better systems for combating it, or for addressing it, for remedying it. That's our instinct. And here, this Mishnah is telling us that there's something called God. And God is intimately involved in our lives. And the Almighty wants us to make sure that we're on the right path. And when we veer off the path and we start to neglect our responsibilities, then the Almighty says, I'm going to throw them a curveball. I'm going to make the life a little bit difficult. And the purpose of this, even though it's addressed as a punishment, it's perhaps also a wake-up call. When we are veering off course and the Almighty wants to get us back on course and he loves us and he loves us like a child, he's trying to get our attention. And if we fail to listen, he's going to up the ante. And if we do listen and we address the spiritual underpinnings of the physical manifestations, the physical bad things that happen to us, then the Mishnah again is intimating that if we didn't have those spiritual sins, we wouldn't have those physical consequences. And thus, when bad things happen to us, this Mishnah is telling us that the mindset we must adopt is to try to look for the spiritual reasons why these bad things happen to us, address the absolute root cause, and once the root cause is addressed, then the manifestation, the symptom, if you will, goes away as well. So this is an entirely different way of viewing bad things happening in the world. Now, I think that this discussion really falls into two categories. When bad things happen to an individual, that's a message for the individual. When bad things happen to a collective, to a region, to a state, to a country, to humanity at large, then that is a different kind of message that's addressed at the public, at the collective. And we're trained in both instances to view the bad things as messages from God. And the deeper idea here is, if you look at the prophets, the prophets are doing this all the time. The prophets are almost like the message boys, the errand boys, the couriers of the Almighty's sentiments towards the people. If the money's happy with us, well, then we'll have a good message. If the money is disappointed with our behavior, meaning he loves us and he wants us to do good things and he wants us to benefit and he wants us to have pleasure, he wants us to have a good life. And when he sees us going, of course, he sends a message via the prophet. And the prophet gathers the people and he riles them up and gets them excited to go repent and to go improve their ways and to go mend their behavior. But alas, we no longer have prophets. We no longer have prophecy. So how are we supposed to know when we're going off course? How are we supposed to know when we are veering further and further away from the proper path that the Almighty has planned for us? How does he convey the message? There's no prophets. 
That's what this Mishnah is talking about. This Mishnah is telling us that the Almighty does give us, so to speak, quote-unquote prophecy, but it's not prophecy via an intermediary, via a person. It's via what we would think is natural phenomena in the world. Oh, periodically there's a drought. Oh, periodically there's an earthquake. Periodically bad things happen. Look at the course of human history. Wars happen. Wars are almost a constant. It's a natural phenomenon. People are going to get into disagreements. There's going to be a war. Oh, pestilence. Things like that happen. The Mishnah is telling us that these things are the replacement of prophecy. These things are the Almighty's messages to us. And they're tailored and targeted for specific sins. Specific sins. When we say a sin, we mean veering off course. Not following what the Almighty wants us to do. And on an individual level, each one of us is a recipient of prophecy when bad things happen to us on an individual level. And this Mishnah is not talking to us as individuals, it's speaking to us as a collective. But elsewhere in the great literature, we find that this principle applies to individuals as well. So the Talmud tells us, the book of Brachos, page 5a, if a person sees that suffering befalls them, the person should examine their ways, examine their deeds, examine their behavior. And quotes a verse in scripture to this effect. Let us inspect our ways. Let us inspect our path. Let us investigate and inquire and return to God. In effect, what it's telling us is a bad thing happening to you is a message, is almost the equivalent of a prophecy from God. He's sending you a message. And you have to try to reverse engineer what the message is. Find the flaw, the gap that the Almighty is trying to help you discover and fix. Fix it, and the symptom goes away. A physician is trained to gather the data and to try to diagnose the problem. If someone has a collection of symptoms... So you could play whack-a-mole with all the symptoms, but you're not going to solve the problem. You have to discover the underlying cause of the malady, of the illness, of the disease. And the disease is manifesting itself with these symptoms. And each one of those symptoms is a clue. And you try to compile those symptoms to try to figure out if you could discover what the root cause is. And that's what this mission is telling us. And our status tells us this by individuals as well. When you have problems, those are symptoms of your spiritual malady. There's at least one opinion in the Talmud that you should never go to the doctor. The only reason why you're going to a doctor is to solve your physical problems. But hey, if your physical problems are just manifestations of your spiritual shortcomings, then just solve the actual problem and the physical problems will go away. There's at least one opinion like that in the Talmud. Now, ultimately, we say, you know what? We're humans. We have to go to the doctor. We have to treat physical maladies, at least on one level, in kind of an isolated physical way, go to the physician, find the medical care, treat it medicinally. But certainly, this is not to ignore the fact that we must also treat it spiritually as well. And again, the Talmud tells us, you have bad things, try to find the underlying spiritual root. Well, what if a person examines every one of their ways, says the Talmud. 
every one of your ways. And you discover that in every single area, you're perfect. And you cannot find the flaw in your character that would warrant this bad thing happening to you. Well, what now? What's the message from God? Says the Talmud. Oh, in that case, you should attribute it to lack of Torah study. Because you know what? Everyone has time that they waste. So if you waste some time, there you go. That's the message. Don't waste time. Use your time judiciously. And that's the message. And if you discover that your entire time is filled 100%, so there's no flaws in your behavior, and there's no misallocation of time, every second of the day is properly allocated to fulfilling the will of the Almighty. So why is the Almighty giving you this message? In that case, says the Talmud, you should know it's suffering of love. The Almighty wants you to suffer a little bit in this world, so that way your reward in the spiritual world is untempered. So again, this principle we see in our Mishnah applied to a collective, you know, war, famine, things like that, pestilence, exile. The same principle applies to a smaller little world, namely to an individual. When bad things happen to you, those are symptoms of the underlying spiritual cause. But again, it's, it's, it's deeper. That is a prophecy. It's the Almighty sending you a specific tailored targeted message of what exactly it is that you, you need to work on. And you have to figure out, examine your ways, go through your behavior, catalog your behavior, discover exactly what it is the message that the Almighty is trying to send to you. And that's a very individualistic view on what's happening to an individual. In our Mishnah, we see an instance where, or several instances, where the individual is ignored. And the individual is treated as part of the collective. And this is what we would call collective punishment. Because, again, we have a case where there is national transgressions, if you will, but it's not every single individual. And nevertheless, everyone suffers. And this introduces us to another important pillar of this Mishnah, namely the idea that sometimes the individual is immersed in the collective and the individual has no, so to speak, grounds to stand on to say, I am different, treat me as an individual, because sometimes people are viewed not as individuals, but rather as part of a collective. The Talmud tells us in the book of Babakama, page 60b, that once there is permission to the angel of death, to the destroyer, to destroy, he does not differentiate between the righteous and the wicked. Meaning, there are times where the role of the individual is ignored and he is just, he or she is just judged as part of the collective. Now, there's another a critical point to this general subject that's featured in the Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 55a. And this is a description of the destruction and devastation that occurred at the end of the first temple era. 
And the Talmud begins that the Almighty always keeps his word when it is for good, with one exception. It only happened once that the Almighty said something good is going to happen to humanity, but retracted it and made it bad. And what is that instance? So it tells us that the Almighty told the angel Gabriel, go and inscribe the letter Tuf, which is the last letter of the alphabet, of the Hebrew alphabet, write that in ink on the foreheads of the righteous. Because when I unleash the angels, I unleash the destruction, I want there to be a sign on the forehead of the righteous that they shouldn't be touched. They should not be controlled at all by the angels of destruction. Similar to what the Almighty did, if we look at Rashi, he did the cane, the Almighty inscribed on his forehead something that will protect him. And then I want you to go, says the Almighty to the angel Gabriel, I want you to make a tuff on the forehead of the wicked, but not out of ink, make it out of blood. Because I want the angels of destruction to go after them and destroy them. So the Almighty is essentially separating between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous, we should protect. We should save. Put a tuff of black ink on their forehead, save them. Whereas the wicked, we should target them. That one is covered in blood. Their foreheads are covered in blood. Destroy them. And then, says the Talmud, the attribute of justice, which sounds like an angel, said to God, wait a minute, what's the difference? Why are you separating? Why are you differentiating between the righteous and the wicked? Why are they being saved and spared and then being destroyed? So the Almighty said, wait a minute, what's the difference? It's a big difference. These are completely righteous and these are completely wicked. Of course they're different. But the attribute of justice said to God, but master of the world, the righteous are responsible for the sins of the wicked. They should have stopped them. They should have protested. They should have tried to get the wicked to behave properly. And they didn't. They could have protested. They should have protested. But they didn't. And therefore, they are equally culpable. So the matter responds to the attribute of justice. Yeah, they didn't protest the wickedness of the wicked. But you know what? I know. For sure. That had they protested, it would not have yielded any results. Had they protested, the wicked would have stayed wicked. And therefore, the fact that they didn't protest, the fact that the righteous didn't protest the behavior of the wicked should not be held against them. And then the attribute of justice said, you know that. But they don't know that. The righteous had no way of knowing that their protests would have been futile. And therefore, they should be punished because they didn't, didn't try. They should have tried. They should have at least attempted to try to get their brethren on the right path. And they might have said, you know what? 
I'm going to listen to you. And he retracted his promise to protect the righteous. And indeed, the plague began with the very righteous people. The Talmud incidentally tells us, well, why the letter tough of all the letters? And he gives us a few interesting ideas. Because again, the righteous and the wicked, at least initially the plan was that the righteous would get a tuff of ink and the wicked would get a tuff of blood. That was the plan. But why the letter tough? So the Talmud tells us that the letter tough is the first letter of the word tichia, you should live. And that's why it was placed on the forehead of the righteous. And it's also the first letter of the word tamut, you should die. And therefore, was put on the forehead of the wicked. Alternatively, the letter Tuf could perhaps invoke the fact that the merits of the patriarchs has seized. Tama schus avos. Alternatively, the Talmud says that the letter Tuf can indicate the end of the Hebrew alphabet to imply that these people, they indeed follow the letter of the law from beginning to end. They kept the whole Torah, they observed the whole Torah from beginning to end. Okay, so that's an important idea regarding the entire subject of collective punishment from the Talmud. Now, I want to quote to you an amazing Rabbeinu Yonah in our Mishnah. Because again, the, the subject of the Mishnah is we do bad things, we transgress, we veer off the path, we go awry. And the Almighty wants to send us a message and the message comes in the form of some sort of punishment. So Rabbi Yonah says a few amazing things and this is related to what we just quoted from the Talmud of the Book of Shabbos. So first of all, he tells us that the Jewish people, us alone, are required to tithe are required to do all these mitzvos that are described in the Mishnah. If there's a famine, if there's a drought, that affects the entire world and affects Jews and non-Jews alike. And if the reason for it is us not obeying the Torah, why should the non-Jews suffer? Isn't that an interesting question? So he says, number one, that the way this actually works is indeed because the Jewish people sin, the Almighty says, I'm going to give a famine to the Jews, but that actually spills over, that spreads out to the whole world. So the irony of this is that in a weird way, the anti-Semites are right! We are responsible for all the world's woes. Again, Rabbeinion is saying here that we do a sin, we transgress, we veer off the path, and that affects not only us, it affects all of humanity. So in a weird way, we are responsible for the whole world. Now, I would say that it's fair to give us the blame for all the bad things, provided you give us the credit for all the good things. Because we believe that we do have an outsized influence on what happens in the world. That's what we believe. We believe that we are at the vanguard of determining what happens to the world. That's the Jewish mission. That's what it means chosen people. That's what we were selected for. We have the Torah. We are the ones who are responsible for humanity. 
and good things happening to humanity is our credit. Bad things is our blame. This mission, of course, is talking about our blame. And the anti-Semites are right in that, provided that they give us credit for the good things. But then he says something interesting. He says, what happens if these sins are done by a few individuals, but not by everyone? And the leaders are not capable of rebuking, of admonishing, of reprimanding, of protesting the behavior of the few. In that instance, the sins of those individuals are siloed off to themselves. And because we have no ability to stop them, we're not responsible for their sins. And in that case, the punishment happens to them alone. The punishment happens to them as individuals. It does not affect the collective. And that's the same idea we saw in the Talmud. That normally, under normal circumstances, we would say, well, everyone's judged as an individual. But there is a condition, and there is a situation in which the sins of the individual wicked people is actually affecting everyone because the righteous people should have tried to stop them. Whether you're successful or not, I don't know. It doesn't even matter. You have to try. But if you can't, or if you tried and you failed, it's not your fault. You've done your due diligence. You've done your responsibility. And then the punishment befalls the wicked and the wicked alone. That's a general introduction. It's a very weighty subject. Again, I'm reiterating the point that I do believe that this Mishnah is counterintuitive to us because our intuition is to always view things in the plane that they manifest. And therefore, if it's something physical, we look for physical solutions. And this Mishnah is telling us that actually this is almost like a prophecy, if you will, where the Almighty is revealing to us His will via the physical world. So I want to go through the Mishnah bit by bit. And I think there is a constant theme of why exactly we have certain punishments for certain transgressions. And even though this is not a comprehensive list of all the transgressions, or for that matter, all the punishments, understanding the model and how things work will help us develop an understanding in general that can be applied to all kinds of transgressions, all kinds of deviations from the proper path, and all kinds of punishments, because this is showing us how it works, and once we know how it works, we can apply it to every situation. And the commentaries are unanimous that the theme of our Mishnah is what we would call Mida Keneged Mida, or Tit for Tat meaning that the punishment is always going to resemble, it's going to mirror the sin. And therefore, when you look at the punishment, just like we talked about the diagnostician, you look at the punishment and you try to reverse engineer, backtest, if you will, try to figure out what is the cause of this punishment, try to find the causal sin. So the Mishnah begins that there are seven kinds of punishment for seven kinds of sin. The first one is some people tithe, some people don't tithe, and therefore some people are hungry and some people are not hungry. And thus, again, it's it's kind of simple. The Mishnah spells that out for us. 
that when as a society we're mixed, then as a society, the results are going to be mixed. Perhaps we could even say to bring this to maybe a, a more modern use of term. In politics today, there's a big emphasis on income inequality. That there's unequal, inequitable results for different people. That's what this mission is talking about. We have to raise society collectively. We have to try to get everyone on board. We cannot be secure and say, you know what, I'm righteous. And everyone else, who cares, they could go to hell. That's not the approach. We have to care of everyone. And therefore, the fact that there is unequal, so to speak, spiritual standing, that is going to create unequal physical standing. Well, okay, what if there is a decision to not tithe universally? Well, in that case, you have a different kind of famine, a famine of war. And when there's war, even the rich people can't get food. Everyone suffers. If everyone sins, everyone suffers. That's the introduction of this Mishnah. When there is unequal sinning, there is unequal punishment. And when there is equal sinning, then there is equal punishment. And thus, this is like a rule, a rule of thumb. When the malady strikes certain people but not others, that is an indication that the underlying cause is because certain people are doing what's proper and some people are not. Whereas when it's a universal thing, then you could deduce from that that the cause of that particular consequence is also likewise universal. The next sin and punishment of our Mishnah is when people decide not to give challah. Challah is one kind of tithing, and there are many kinds of tithing. And specifically, this one is mentioned in the Mishnah. And it tells us that there is a very destructive kind of famine. There's no rain at all, and everyone suffers. And the question is, why specifically is this tithe being highlighted over here out of all the tithes? There's truma, there's miser, there's all kinds of tithes that are featured in the law, and this is the one that it highlights. So I saw the Chassid Yaivitz says something very interesting. He says that the final tithe, when you start off with the you start planting. There's all kinds of mitzvahs that you do until you actually have a bread on your table. The last mitzvah that you do is when the wheat is already ground into flour and the flour is already made into a dough and now you have a dough. And you're about to bake it and the final one that you do, the final tie that you do is you take part of the dough and you give it to the Kohen. And that's the challah. And he says that at this juncture, you have already seen the Almighty helping you all the way through. You should have the most accumulated appreciation for God at this juncture. And when things are so good for you, and in that instance, you forget to acknowledge that, to acknowledge the goodness and to thank God, in that instance, there's a specific kind of consequence that comes because that is a specifically egregious kind of lack of gratitude. And then it talks about what happens when there are punishments not meted out by the court. So the example for this here is you have pestilence. Pestilence doesn't differentiate, like a plague, doesn't differentiate between the righteous and the wicked. 
And in that instance, that is the result of the court not differentiating between the righteous and the wicked. Justice is about finding who is innocent and exculpating them and finding out who is guilty and convicting them. Justice is all about figuring out exactly people's standing. And when that is neglected, when that is not done properly, in that case, people are viewed universally and then a plague can indeed ensue. And the next one that it tells us is that a pestilence, a plague, comes for people who don't treat the peros shvias, who don't treat the fruits of the seventh year properly. Well, what are you supposed to do with the fruits of the seventh year? You're supposed to make it ownerless. You're supposed to allow anyone to come and take it. And therefore, it is fitting, it is tit for tat for a plague to come because a plague kind of doesn't differentiate. You are supposed to not differentiate between who gets to get take your fruits. Everyone can take it. Anyone can take it. And the fitting punishment for that is that anyone could be afflicted by a plague. It doesn't differentiate. And then it tells us that when there is a sword, i.e. war, that comes to the world, it's the result of the delay of justice, the perversion of justice, and for ruling in Torah improperly. The commentaries point out that this is actually featured in Scripture. If you look, if you look at the end of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26, it says that clearly that for lack of keeping the Torah and its rules, you indeed have a war. And the next thing we read about is when there is a wild animal that descends upon the world. And that is the result of unnecessary oaths. An oath is us using our mouth. And our words are our superpower. And the greatest differentiation between man and beast is the fact that we could speak. When Adam is endowed with the spirit of life, the Unculus translate that to mean that he became a speaking being. We could speak, we have interdependence, we could work together. That's what makes us different than animals. When a person does not utilize their power of speech properly, then they become indistinguishable from animals and it makes sense that an animal would attack them. In fact, the Talmud actually tells us in the book of Sanhedrin, page 38b, a wild animal only controls a person if that person appears to that animal to be an animal as well. And the deeper message is, if we don't harness and and vigorously protect our superpower, our ability to speak, and we use it lachadaisically, nonchalantly, we just make oaths and we say things and we do things with our mouth improperly, we become fodder for the animals. And finally, we have the four reasons why exile happens, and that is for idolatry, for licentiousness, for bloodshed, and for not observing the Shemitah. And again, the commentaries point out that all these are featured explicitly in Scripture. In chapter 18 of the book of Leviticus, it says that the land will vomit us out. 
And similarly, chapter 26 of Leviticus, it talks about the land will be disgusted with us. And they might be disgusted with us and it will reject us, i.e. cause exile. Similarly, in Leviticus 26, it describes what happens once the Jewish people leave. Once the Jewish people are expelled from the land, there's exile. There is dispersion. Then the land will finally have its Shemitah. And again, with with murder, it's obvious, because even someone who murders accidentally must go into exile, must go to the city of refuge. And finally, we have Mishnah number 12, the four instances that there is pestilence, and all of them relate to us not treating the poor person properly, not giving the tithe to the poor person, not giving the gifts to the poor person. And the idea behind this is, again, it is fitting, it is tit for tat, because you are taking away the life and the livelihood of the poor person. And you think that you will lose out when you give to him. And your life is going to be long. Because you know what? I'm maintaining my assets. I'm not giving the poor person my assets. I'll have more assets. After all, if you give your assets to the poor, if you give charity, if you tithe, you're going to have less. That's the thought that you have. And the way the Almighty responds to that is by pestilence. And pestilence caused people to die unnaturally young. Let's see how long you last if you neglect the poor. And thus, it is indeed fitting punishment. And as we would say, not just punishment, a fitting wake-up call, a fitting and targeted and tailored prophetic message. So this is the day of the Mishnah. The day of the Mishnah is when bad things happen to us. We are being trained here in this Mishnah to view it as a consequence of a spiritual shortcoming. When there's a spiritual shortcoming, the Almighty says, I'm going to give a message to the person, to the collective, to know why I'm displeased with them. And just like a prophet, sometimes a prophet needs to do work on their own. The Ram tells us that there's two kinds of prophecy. There's the Mosaic prophecy, Moshe, and Moshe is able to speak exactly the words of God. And then there's the prophecy of all the other prophets, where they have to understand what the message is. The message is a little more opaque. The message is a little bit more unclear. And the prophet needs to process it, needs to understand what exactly the message is, and to begin to formulate that message in their own words. And that's why the Torah comes to us only from Moshe, because only Moshe has the unadulterated word of God. So, when bad things happen to us, both as individuals and as a collective, like a prophet, we have to try to figure out what the message is. What is the tit for tat? What exactly is the Almighty doing for us? And again, it gives us here a long list of examples, but this is not a comprehensive list. But this should train us to understand the modus operandi here of how exactly the Almighty operates with us, how He works with us. We are given a little curveball, a punishment, it could be called. Really, it's a message. It is a prophecy. It is a warning. It's a wake-up call. It's a nudge. The money wants our attention. Over the last couple of months, there have been four very similar tragedies that have affected the greater Jewish community. So in Lagba Omer, we all know what happened in Lagba Omer. In Meiron, 
in one of the biggest Jewish events of the year, there was a crowd crush and 45 Jews died. People were crushed to death. And then a couple of weeks later, in one of the Hasidic courts of Jerusalem, a bunch of bleachers collapsed and three people passed. And sometime later, or maybe it was earlier, but around that same time, there was a cable car in Italy. Did you hear about that? There was a cable car in Italy that collapsed and there was a Jewish family inside that cable car and they all died. And now what happened recently in, in Florida on Surfside, in the rubble, presumed dead, there are 40 plus Jews. Now, all these things are things that we could blame on infrastructure. We could say, well, you got to have a better crowd control at a big event. You got to make sure that the cable cars in Italy are well maintained and it can handle the weight. And you have to make sure that the structural integrity of these buildings, of these high rises, that the integrity is sound. These are things that are legitimate responses. And these are the responses that we are inclined to give. But perhaps in light of this Mishnah, maybe it's also some sort of message for us. Because again, there's a lot of different Jewish people involved in these tragedies from all kinds of walks of life and all kinds of backgrounds. And our urge, our instinct is to use these tragedies to reinforce our pre-existing, our prior biases. But I think this Mishnah is all about training us to try to figure out what the Almighty is trying to tell us. What is he trying to tell us? Now, again, if you were to say, hey, we got to do a better job on infrastructure and building integrity and cable car integrity and crowd control and bleachers, make sure they can handle the weight of the people on top of them. That's a very accurate statement. But that is ignoring the message of this Mishnah. This Mishnah is telling us that when things happen to us that we can attribute to physical factors, they also have a spiritual component to it as well. So what is that to the message is? You really need a prophet to know 100% sure, but the exercise of trying to figure out what exactly it is, that too is valuable as well. And I think in light of this Mishnah, it is incumbent upon us to do that exercise ourselves. I thank you all for listening. I hope you are doing well. My email address is RabbiWalby, R-A-B-B-I-W-O-L-B-E, as an echo, at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing your questions, your comments, and your feedback.